Welcome to the Food Intelligence Podcast presented by TasteWise. My name is Ron, and today we're talking to Aviv Oren from the Good Food Institute. So this is Alternative Protein Month here at TasteWise, so we're talking to experts from the alternative protein field. Aviv is definitely one of them. GFI works with startups and other technology companies to help promote alternative proteins, so he is very, very uniquely positioned to talk about the massive, what he calls, $14 billion opportunity that this space is gonna provide over the next decade. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. So today joining me is Aviv Oren from GFI, the Good Food Institute. Aviv, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Thank you, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So uh, can you kind of kick us off by telling us a little bit about uh, GFI? What's your mission? What do you do? And what do you do personally at GFI? GFI, the Good Food Institute, is a nonprofit organization. was established in the U.S. And now we are a global almost 130 employees, uh, 30% of us PhD in their uh, fields. And we are here in order to accelerate uh, the world to a better food system. In our view, uh, alternative protein uh, products that will come from plant-based fermentation or cultivated uh, technology to replace uh, animal-based products. Uh, we do so uh, in three pillars. Uh, we have a team of uh, science and technology that work with uh, research institutions and universities in order to accelerate research. We are providing uh, grants every year, about $8 million of grants in white spaces in alternative proteins. Uh, our team of uh, business people are working in order to accelerate innovation, working with entrepreneurs, startups, investors, uh, big food companies, corporate, uh, in order to accelerate innovations into commercialization. Um, and we also have a team of policy that is working uh, on labeling, novel foods regulations, and, uh, and so on. We are based in the US, Brazil, Europe, APAC, and Israel. I'm leading the business engagement and innovation in Israel, working mostly with the industry, with the startup scene. We see a lot of innovation in Israel in alternative protein, and GFI Israel is mostly focusing on the innovation side, less on the consumer side since we are a small market. That's amazing. So is most of the um, either innovation or let's call it the, the vehicles that you use in order to achieve your mission is through technology and through um, helping fund these startups and these companies that you feel are going to make a difference? We started uh, even early in, in the universities. We are also teaching uh, courses in, uh, in Israeli universities. It's, now we are starting also abroad, uh, working um, uh, with students on research proposals um, and working with incubators that we have here in Israel uh, in order to try and to map a uh, venture creation uh, pipeline uh, in the alternative protein space. Um, working with entrepreneurs from the scientific backgrounds or from the business background, trying to connect them with the right investors, uh, trying to help them in order to establish a company. We have about 40, 40 startups in Israel uh, working on alternative protein products in 2020. 
and we see about 30 more uh, startups in the pipeline. Yeah, that's amazing. And you have made, um, there's a prediction that I read uh, somewhere on your uh, website about um, there being um, a massive financial opportunity for alternative proteins in the near future. I think you cited around uh, an opportunity of around $14 billion. Um, why do you believe that there's such a massive opportunities for companies to get into alternative proteins? So we see the consumer demand coming from not only vegan and vegetarian, but mostly from flexitarians. Uh, Beyond Meat published their data that 93% of the people that consume their, uh, their meat are not vegetarian and not vegans. And uh, so it's the mass of the market. Flexitarians are in uh, are about 30% of the market in Israel and the US. I think UK, they say it's almost 40%. And for this type of people, we need to bring food that it's more analog to the food that they are used to eat until now. Uh, tofu is great, and uh, and some of them also consume it, but this is not the mass market. And we see that uh, products that are mimicking uh, the texture and uh, the way that the, you cook the food, uh, like the real animal products, are the product that win uh, the market uh, share. And, uh, and this is what we are trying to accelerate. Um, regarding the, the figure that you mentioned, $14 billion, uh, when you analyze the, uh, the U.S. market, we see that 15% of uh, the milk market is plant-based milk. Uh, if you compare it to the plant-based meat, it's only 1.4% of the meat market. So it's still in the early stage. So for the plant-based meat to reach the same percentage of share of the plant-based milk, it's a $14 billion opportunity that line the U.S. market only today. Yeah, so the fact that uh, you say it's in an early stage, it, it's actually a good thing for companies kind of starting up in this space. Because even though you said you're only in Israel working with, uh, what was it, 30 or 40 startups that are starting up in this very specific um, stage, um, but it's um, if you look at it globally, there's actually still a lot of white space for innovation. So would you would you say that we're reaching like a point of saturation in terms of new companies entering this space, or there's still a lot of white space to explore? So GFI team of scientists actually uh, had an amazing project that mapped all the white spaces in the field of alternative protein mm-hmm. from uh, the from uh, development, from R&D, in terms of, uh, for example, uh, growth factors uh, for cultivated meat uh, medium in order to reduce the cost of the cultivated meat product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, up until two commercializations opportunities. So we mapped all the white spaces and there are still a lot of room for innovation. They are not. Uh, uh, there are no good uh, uh, plant-based or cultivated uh, uh, fish or seafood products in the market yet. It's starting. There are companies working on that, but yeah. it's still in the early. It's still in the early days, and there is a lot of room for innovations and for more companies to come. Uh, and even if investors look at this as, um, you know, it's a very buzzing uh, uh, industry at the moment. So some some investors will ask. Uh, do we have a bubble here? It's still, it's still in the early days. Yeah. Uh, alternative protein startups in Israel raised 
114 million dollars in 2020. I think it will be close to half a billion in 2021. So yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Um, we are releasing a big report specifically about uh, meat alternatives uh, within alternative protein um, in uh, later this month. I think uh, the release is on uh, August 18th. And we explore a lot of things. For example, where is uh, alternative proteins more popular in terms of um, U.S. cities and in uh, a breakdown of, uh, like, for example, we know that Oregon is uh, the state that leads uh, with alternative protein consumption. Um, but one of the things that I think is most interesting is motivations for alternative proteins. Because you mentioned that a little bit. You talked about how it's, imp it's important to mimic the texture and I would say even like the experience. So for example, to mimic the experience of doing a barbecue on 4th of July, right? Being able to recreate that experience with something that is um, uh, cruelty-free or plant-based um, or vegan, right, to better suit your lifestyle. Um, and we're seeing that it also holds true for the personal drivers, for why am I eating a, an alternative protein uh, product? Uh, we used to see a spike in sustainability, so like planetary health, right? And that is trending towards more uh, personal health, even over specific nutritional aspects. Um, a lot of people are citing kind of their own personal health for the, the drivers for it, which um, I, think, um, I think is fascinating. So you talked a little bit about the opportunity that's there and you talked about some uh, companies operating in this space. And, I, and I'd like to get your take on this whole um, idea of experiences. So it sounds from what you're saying that um, you believe that the bigger opportunity or the more interesting space is um, kind of mimicking meat or recreating experience rather than trying to create something that is completely new and completely um, uh, hasn't been done before on the plate? Uh, I yes, uh, my answer to this is yes, but I believe it will come in stages. I think food, as you mentioned, it's a very cultural uh, thing that people uh, used to have barbecue when they are celebrating, for example, 4th of July. Yeah. And, uh, and because of that, you need to provide them the things that they like. Uh, if you, uh, when we look at our consumer research uh, data, so we see that people will claim that health, for example, and environmental sustainability reasons are at top of their priorities when they are purchasing, uh, when they are doing their food purchasing choices. But in reality, the repurchasing choices are coming from taste, price, mm -hmm and how convenient it is for them to cook, how they are familiar with this, those are the top three. So health and sustainability goes down a little bit when you actually measure the repurchasing trends of, uh, of, of people. And this is why the first step is will be to provide them the things that they are used to it, the way they used to cook it. To cook it. Yeah. And maybe in the future, you know, you will have a cultivated uh, flamingo steak Maybe yeah. it's delicious. We don't know yet, but uh, yeah, we'll get there. It it's will like come we're later not. On. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we did uh, an interview with um, Rachel Weinberg, who is um, head of um, uh, meal innovation at Freshly, which is a prepared meal company owned by Nestle. And one of the things that she was talking about is how you can't innovate on both the format and the ingredients. You have to choose one. So her example was um, if you take the Israeli spice or like the, um, not 
necessarily Israeli, kind of Mediterranean spice um, uh, za'atar, and you put that on something that is completely unknown to, let's say, a population in Idaho in, uh, in the U.S., no one will buy it. But if you put it on, for example, the example she uses is a bagel, use something that everybody knows to kind of introduce that, then that's how you do innovation. You can't innovate on both the format and the ingredient. You have to choose one. And it seems like the same holds true in, um, in alternative protein as well. Um, yeah, so do you, um, more kind of on a, on a personal level, did you get into this uh, because this aligns with your own uh, personal belief and, and your own lifestyle? Or I guess the broader question is, how did you get into working uh, for GFI? So I'm, I'm coming from 15 years of experience in the medical devices, biotech, and farmers industries, yeah. and different roles of uh, business development, product management, and business development. And I love technology. I love innovation. I think Israel is a great space for those uh, uh, for the tech industry. So there is a lot of interesting opportunities here. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to bring my knowledge, skills, and education to something that I, to solve the biggest uh, uh, problems of the world. And I believe that the, the way we are going to feed the world, 10 billion people, uh, that we will have in the near future uh, in terms of uh, sustainability, environment, animal welfare, antibiotic use, health issue, uh, so many uh, problems to solve that I believe are much more important than, for example, improve um, features in the medical field. That uh, uh, This is my personal view. Yeah. This is why I found myself at GFI. <laughs> And do you focus um, more specifically or find yourself spending more of your time on um, meat alternatives other than dairy alternatives? Or do you find kind of like an even spread? Like if we put everything into three categories of um, dairy, meat, and uh, seafood, um, do you find that meat is uh, currently more interesting or more kind of like buzzworthy or spread out a bit uh, more equally? So I think the categories are meat, dairy, and eggs. Okay. And seafood and fish will go under under meat. It can be mm-hmm. chicken, fish, uh, or beef, or whatever. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, we want to see more innovation around the seafood and fish, and it's starting. And we are promoting this. We want to see more innovation around all cut, mm-hmm. uh, not uh, uh, mince or. Uh, beef or chicken, uh, but if we want to get uh, schnitzels or uh, uh, tuna or salmon, so we want to see more innovations around the uh, all cut textures. Um, we focus on meat because this is uh, not more important, but the majority of the sustainability and health issues are coming from beef rather than uh, uh, dairy and eggs. However, we work a lot on, on the dairy and eggs uh, innovation for alternative protein as well. Yeah. So you mentioned a lot of startups, and I think that's probably uh, more to do with, um, with uh, your line of work. But do you see any of this innovation also happening at the bigger companies, like the larger CPGs? Do you, is that a part of your world at all? Or is this um, kind of the time for startups to shine in, uh, in this space? It's inter- a very interesting question. But first of all, I think it's hard to create innovation in a company, in a large corporation, for obvious reason, mm-hmm. And for the reason that sometimes 
you're trying to create the opposite than what's going on in those companies in some yeah. way. Uh, for example, Tyson Food, which is a meat company. So you come and you're trying to create cultivated meat or plant-based feed. For those people that work there, it's against them what they did up until today. So it's, it's very difficult to create innovation in this type of uh, political environment. Uh, however, we see that some companies are aiming, you see all the big food companies are uh, targeting this space because if they will measure the growth in sales of their product, they will see the highest double-digit growth in the, in the plant-based product that they are releasing to the market. Yeah. So the innovation is coming in different ways for those companies. Some of them in, uh, in investment with their venture arms, some of them in uh, joint ventures. We saw Nestle signing a, a partnership uh, deal with FutureMe, trying to work on cultivated uh, a product that will be a hybrid product, plant-based and cultivated cells. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it can be by partnership, it can be by investments, it can be by M&A. Many of the companies, the big food companies in Israel have uh, incubators that are investing in startups. Nuva, the largest food company in Israel, has a first start incubator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Strauss has the, the kitchen hub incubator that has, I think, six alternative protein portfolio companies. So yeah. there are many ways to create innovation in this space that it's not necessarily in-house. Yeah, I can tell you just from our perspective with some of the customers we get to work with, everybody is interested in plant-based, everybody's interested in alternative proteins. We have customers where they, just like you said, very specifically are a um, meat-based product company uh, and they're also very, very interested in this research that uh, uh, that uh, that we're doing. Um, you know, that's uh, that's really that's really amazing to hear. So, could you help me kind of map or break down the way that uh, the market is built today? Like, if, uh, for example, you take uh, companies like Redefine Meat or um, Aleph Farms that uh, I know just raised a lot of money as well, and you kind of compare them to. I guess the more established players like uh, Impossible Foods and uh, and Beyond Meat. Do you see those as playing in the same categories, or do you see those as kind of like product companies versus uh, lab grown or, or cultivated meat? How do you map out the the players in this market? So first of all, everybody can download from GFI website the state of the industry reports, uh, and we divide those reports to plant-based, fermentation, and cultivated. We also have the state of innovation report for the Israeli market from GFI uh, Israel website, yeah. uh, and it will give you the deep dive into this ecosystem. Um, so we like to divide the, the alternative protein ecosystem to three, and based on the technology that those companies are using. The first one will be cultivated, most of the companies there will be cultivated meat. It can be uh, beef, chicken, lamb, fish, shrimps, uh, whatever. And there are 60 companies around the world that are working uh, on the race for a cultivated uh, meat uh, product. Mm-hmm. Five of them are in Israel. Um, Ale Farm is one of them that raised $105 million recently in Series B. Uh, Future Meat is also an Israeli company working on cultivated fat cells. Um, and within the cultivated, so you can have different approaches. So in what way, in, in which technology you will use in order to get to the final product. 
for example, Aleph is trying to create a whole stack. So they are using scaffolding techniques that the cells grow on it. Mm-hmm. Um, Mitech, for example, will use the, the cells that they are cultivated into 3D printer in order to create the, uh, the cut at the end. So it's a mix of uh, cultivated and 3D printing. Uh, so this is one sector. And then we have fermentation, which is an all very old uh, technique used uh, in food. However, mm-hmm. with uh, the improvement of biotechnology and microbiology techniques, you can now use it in order to create the future food. For example, yeah. precision fermentation. Uh, uh, you can take a, a single cell uh, organism like yeast or bacteria and to program it uh, to, to be the host and to produce you the protein that you are uh, looking for. For example, in the dairy market, it can be uh, the whey or the casein for, um, for dairy products. We have Perfect Day in the U.S., Working in that direction, we have remilk and imagine dairy in Israel. And there are other ways for fermentation, uh, you know, biomass fermentation, solid state fermentation to produce even uh, plant-based meat, uh, food, and so on. So this is the second category. And then we have plant-based. Plant-based using uh, ingredients like soy, pea protein, chickpea protein, wheat protein, and so on, Uh, algae uh, trying to produce plant-based uh, food, if it's meat, dairy, or eggs. Uh, for example, you mentioned Redefine. Redefine is an Israeli company in the plant-based category, using also uh, 3D printing techniques in order to try to create the final uh, texture and the stack. So those are the three main categories that we are looking at when we are looking at alternative protein. Yeah, that's really that's really helpful to kind of help categorize it. We actually um, now as we really dove into this and did a lot of research. We actually ended up doing a lot of, uh, like reading a lot of the content that you guys have uh, put out. So obviously, thank you for that. It's always, it's always so much fun just listening to someone who is obviously an expert in their space kind of talk about uh, the, the market and you're clearly super excited about it. So you mentioned how hard it is to do innovation at uh, larger companies and uh, you know the, the bigger players in the, in the field. Obviously, at least the way I see it, um, this movement can't really succeed without them either, right? So a lot of, if you go high up enough to everything that you see in a supermarket, you usually land on the same, you know, four or five companies that own pretty much everything. And obviously they make a lot of investments and acquisitions and, uh, and incubate a lot of, um, a lot of this. Um, there's also, I think, another avenue, which uh, you talked about a little bit, which is kind of market education, which you guys do through university classes, through content, um, through collaborations with a lot of these startups, and something that we're seeing a lot of uh, very successful um, either influencers or brands, they're more established companies that own a lot of these sub-brands that maybe you don't even know that map back to like Unilever and Mars and Nestle and um, and you know and Pepsi and and the large players in the field um, that um, that are using things like recipes, for example. Uh, to integrate a lot of these products into the day-to-day lives of uh, their consumers. So recipes are an incredibly powerful vehicle that we feel that uh, brands use in order to insert themselves into the lifestyles of, um, of their consumers. So for example, you know, I, an example that I always use is during quarantine, I had my kids at home, 
Uh, they are, I'm used to them having their lunch in, um, in daycare. And uh, I would step into the kitchen and say, okay, I want to make a healthy, quick lunch for uh, toddlers, for example. And then um, that led me to a specific dish that, uh, that has now become kind of like a staple in our household. So part of the, my kind of a long way, long winded point that I'm getting to is that this is a way for a lot of brands to make sure that things that are plant-based, alternative protein, whatever is the path that gets you there uh, to accomplish the mission makes its way to the table at home in a consistent way. And that um, you mentioned earlier that consumption frequency or the repurchasing um, also will be supported by, um, by these recipes, by the things that, uh, that you end up um, making. So this is a huge way that we're seeing uh, a lot of the larger companies kind of use data, look for what is trending, look for the plant-based alternative for it, whether that is, uh, I'm using plant-based as an example, but um, it could be anything from meat to dairy to even um, snacks. Right. I don't know if you're aware, but uh, Pepsi uh, recently released a line of vegan uh, snacks called uh, Off the Eden Path um, that uh, they did in collaboration with us and the research that uh, they did uh, with uh, TasteWise. And I feel like all of these things kind of culminate to, um, to the same mission. Sorry for going off on a tangent there. I just find the whole content marketing and recipe part of it really, really fascinating. Is that side that um, you see? a lot of the kind of up-and-coming startups invest any time in at all? Or do you see them focusing 100% of their resources on the technology? So I will try to, for example, in Israel, we focus less on the market education because we are a small market. So we are yeah. here in order to help those companies to accelerate, to develop the right products. And you mentioned a very interesting point. Maybe they need to think that direction as well when they're developing the product because their goal is basically to take their product out of Israel, you know, to become a global company because sure. the market in Israel is, is small and they want their product to be sold in the U.S., in Asia, in Europe, yeah. Brazil, India, and all the big markets. And, they, and the, then the challenge of the recipe will become even more uh, interesting because yeah. you need to... It has uh, to be localized, yeah. It has to be localized. So I think some of the, those companies are B2B. So they are not dealing with this. Maybe they're thinking about it because their ingredients, for example, the chickpea protein ingredients is for those food companies to use in order to produce the yogurt or, or the plant-based eggs and so on. So some of them are B2B company and I think they are less dealing with the recipe concept. Mm -hmm. uh, more and more, we see more and more companies are moving to the B2C uh, types of, type of approach or at least uh, co-branding approach yeah. with those with those big food companies and in that perspective i think maybe it's very interesting that they will start to think in this creation of uh, yeah um, i think i think redefine is uh, starting this when they are launching their product uh, those days uh, first at the food service market so they are working with the chefs of those restaurants and how to use the minsberg uh, beef for uh, for all kind of product, if it's lasagna or spaghetti bolognese or or, yeah. um, or, or maybe traditional recipes, but adapted to the plant-based products that they are using. Yeah, that's amazing. I would encourage um, really any of these companies to really look at the kind of market education part of it, um, because we have to remember that 
even as you're creating the relationships with people who work for Nestle and Pepsi and Kraft Heinz and um, Unilever and all these massive companies, these are still people, right? These are still people that um, that consume themselves. We're all consumers. We're all, we all, you know, eat and drink these things. Um, and they have to be educated as well. And it's definitely going to be conducive to those relationships. And it's really interesting that you pointed out Redefine as um, one of the companies you feel are, are doing this because Redefine um, is actually our next guest on the podcast. So our next episode is going to be with them um, talking about a lot of these things too. So um, so I'm really, I, I'm, it's going to be fun calling back to this uh, on, the, on the episode with them. Um, no, I think uh, I think that's a really amazing opportunity for a lot of these companies. Uh, I know that even just from not really from the very specific space that we're talking about, but adjacent to it, a company like Oatly, um, that I know that I learned a lot just from their ads, right? Um, and I know that the impact that the education that they're doing, even though they have like a very fun way of uh, going about it, um, I can tell you it's having an impact on conversations that I'm having with people that are high up in these massive uh, conglomerates that um, uh, that are, we're mentioning here. Um, amazing. So to kind of wrap us up, um, is there, uh, we have a lot of people in the industry listening to, to this podcast. We're very fortunate to have, uh, to have a great audience that's engaged with us and kind of sending us a lot of suggestions to things that, uh, that we need to explore. That's where the whole idea for Alternative Protein Month really uh, came from. And I feel that you and, the, and your company are really kind of at the center of this storm that's going on right now. So is there anything else that you want to add or say about the opportunity facing both companies large and small right now? I think that Israel is a great hub for innovation, and I invite all the multinationals company to interact more with the startup ecosystem in Israel in terms of investments, in terms of uh, uh, joint ventures, all kinds of uh, partnerships. In terms, we are looking to accelerate also innovation in this space and to open uh, alternative protein innovation centers that will uh, be used by both academia and industry. We need more of advanced uh, uh, innovation centers uh, like that in Israel, uh, like the one that was just established in Singapore. And for that, I invite also the multinationals company to be part also working with the Israeli government for funding those types of uh, centers, uh, but the industry needs to uh, to be part of it as well. Amazing. So, and where can uh, where can listeners learn more about GFI? All of our content is an open source. Uh, it's published on our website. Uh, it can be gfi.org, which is our global site. Uh, it can be GFI uh, Gael, which is our Israeli site. All of our reports, webinars, everything is published there. You can register to our newsletter. In September, we will have the Good Food Conference, which is a deep dive uh, into the alternative protein space. Uh, so you are welcome. Amazing. I'll make sure to include all the links in the show notes. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, the team that helps us put together this podcast. The Intelligence Podcast is produced by Ophir Nagar and edited by Daniel Gall. Uh, so thank you so much to the team that uh, helps us make it happen. And thanks so much to you, Aviv, for taking the time to chat with us today. <laughs>